Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Poolside Pass podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking to Graham Wardell, head coach at City of Cardiff, uh, previous um, head coach of the Scottish Commonwealth Games team in 2014. And we're going to be speaking to Graham today about his experiences um, of putting swimmers on international teams, um, being head coach on international teams, and just... um, basically discussing his career um, at the top level of, of, of swimming in, in Britain. Um, but before we get into that interview, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed recording with Graham, uh, just a quick line from our sponsors, Streamlined. Become a qualified swimming teacher with Streamlined in as little as six days. Learn at your own pace and be guided by our expert tutors. You can do your training face-to-face, online in real time, or a combination of the two. Assessment can be in your club using videos or attending one of our assessment venues. We offer tailored, high-quality support. Quote the poolside pass for an extra 10% discount. Okay, so I think it's about time I introduce Graham to the podcast. Graham Wardell, welcome. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Nice to be here. So why don't we just uh, start with just getting a little bit of uh, your background within swimming, how you got into coaching, um, kind of up to up to present day. Oh, well, easy enough, really, I guess. Um, I learned to swim at City of Cardiff Swimming Club. It was my, um, I swam. I wasn't a particularly good swimmer, but I really enjoyed swimming. I, you know, I did my A-levels, did the usual thing. And I went off to university, University of Southampton. And when I was there, Dave Heathcock was the then head coach at Southampton. And I desperately wanted to join the club. And he said, yeah, okay, you can come and do some sessions. That's fine, sort of thing. And then I got so I could join the squad properly, but I couldn't afford the fees. So he said to me, oh, I've got an idea then, Graham. You can do a little coaching job for me on the weekend. Just come along and maybe take one or two squads on the weekend. And I ended up doing like five or six hours on a Saturday and five or six hours on a Sunday and just doing it like as a, as a volunteer to start and just really, really enjoyed it. And then I guess the thing came when it came to be uh, time to decide where I wanted, wanted to, to go with my life. I just enjoyed the coaching. So I started working there just part-time, you know, for a year basically and loved it ever since. And so, yeah, it's been my life since, since I was 19, which as you can tell, it's been a few years. Yeah. <laughs> so... Being involved with coaching for uh, over 30 years now, I, I, I gather. Um, I started very young. <laughs> what would you say have been your proudest moments as a swimming coach? Uh, do you know what, James? There's been, um, there's been absolutely loads of them. I think, you know, I'm always really proud when just when you do a first in anything. So like, I think obviously getting my first job at City of Southampton was, was, was really exciting for me because I felt like I was doing something I really loved. Um, get my first head coach's job. I was moved from Southampton to a really small club in the north of Hampshire in, in Andover. And I became head coach there when I was like 21 or 22. And I thought I was like, you know, the bee's knees sort of thing. I was working full time, another job, then trying to do um, part-time coaching around that. And I put a girl on a European, on a British junior team in 1988, a girl called Jenny Waite, who was an awesome talented swimmer. And, um, you know, we were a really small club. We had 10 hours of pool time a week. That was it. And she was, she was fab. And that was a real, obviously a real first for me. But I think first things like first Commonwealth Games for her. So a girl called Louise Cool, I put on to Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 2002. And for, for, for me, I coached Louise since she was like 10 through to 18. So it was like right, I was yeah. there with her journey as well. So that was like, that's why that was super special because I really saw her grow up um, and, and I kind of grew up with her. And then just you know, things like Robbie Rennick winning gold in Delhi in, in 2010 because he was coached by one of my closest friends, Eileen Adams, who uh, passed away 
just prior to uh, Delhi, and I'd gone into just take over for the last four months into into him um, competing in Delhi. So I felt a real responsibility to helping him achieve Ireland's legacy, sort of thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, really proud moments. Kids at Commonwealth Games, kids at the Olympics, you know. But equally, just you know, some of my little kids now, I, now I'm coaching in Cardiff. I look after some of the some of the, the little ones as well. You know, when they do a best time or they get their first county time or stuff, that's you know, it's super exciting. So that's that's always a, a difficult question, I think, for coaches in terms of what's your proudest moment. So if you ask a swimmer what's your proudest moment, they'll just instantly go to one of like their biggest achievement or, or whatever, yeah. because it's it's just it's just them they've got to think about. Whereas when you ask a coach, you know, we're invested with so many individual athletes, so you know we're proud of each each achievement because everyone has their own special achievement, and we're exactly. proud of helping think, them to get to that. I think people have their own things they have to overcome to get there as well sometimes you know you, you coach some people who you know I can think of a couple of coaches with single parent families and parents don't drive and they're getting buses across town to get to training and you know for them to achieve something is actually a, a really big thing yeah and um, sometimes you, you're kind of equally as proud of that sort of thing so you know those, those, those kind of moments so within within that that career I can imagine you've you've learned a lot along the way um would you say it's something you've always made a point out of um, making sure you seek out information and making sure you're always learning or did you uh, just yeah, I, stumble across things as you went along? Well, I think it's probably a bit of both. I think in the early days I stumbled more than I learned. Uh, <laughs> I think um, when I first started coaching, and I know that a lot of my students kind of failed to grasp this, that like Google wasn't around and you know, <laughs> computers weren't invented sort of thing. So it was very much you, you relied on, you know, buying a book. I've got some books here on the shelf behind me and, you, you know, or, or taking out a subscription to like Swimming World or Swimming Times and that sort of stuff. And then when you got to meet, so trying to speak to coaches because that was the only way you could learn that you didn't have the information that you have nowadays. Nowadays, it's so much easier because, A, and, and because coach education is so much more now, there's lots of more opportunities to go to conferences and courses and do stuff online and speak to people and stuff. So, yeah, so I think it's actually it's got easier as I've got older. So I probably learned more and I probably failed more when I was younger because I, I tried stuff thought to be you know, revolutionary and it was, it was awful. And, you know, <laughs> and we kind of learned along the way. And I think, I think that's, that's, that's one of the key things We're all good coaches. You, you kind of always learning, you learn something different and, and you learn from the athletes as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think that's also really important. So I, I think probably one of the best things I learned was from, when I was in Glasgow, I had a boy who emailed me and he said uh, he was doing a BTEC in sport. And he said he wanted to come and observe one of my um, coaching sessions and do like an analysis of how I coached. So, okay, I'd be fine. Sort of thing. I didn't see that I was going to get loads out of it, but I thought it was good for him. So it's quite nice to do. So he came along and I had Robbie Relic in the pool at the time. It was the year leading into the Olympics. And um, he sat there and watched me coach. Didn't say a word, really quiet lad. Didn't say a word sort of thing. And then we finished and I was chatting away to him. And I said did you get what you want from that sort of thing? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you got any questions for me? And he said, yeah, okay. And he said, you did this really well. You did this really well. You did this really well. And I'm thinking, it's a bit cheeky. He's telling me what I did really well. (laughs) But then he said to me, have you ever considered at the end of the session, asking your athletes if they got from you what they wanted for that session? And I was like, do you know, I've never considered that. So this 16 year old lad is now telling me something with, here's me, the big head thinking with all my years of experience, now, he's telling me something I've never considered. So that was, I really learned something from him that day. It's actually said my athletes was, you know, you got that race pace set tonight. Was I supportive enough? Did, did I give you what you wanted, you know? And I think that's also really important sometimes. I forget to ask the athletes 
was that good for you sort of thing so yeah you know i think you can learn everywhere i think i think for me it's moments like that make you realize that you you take your learning wherever you can you know whether it's from your assistant coach from a parent from 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 a swimmer you learn everywhere i guess that that really fits really well with always having that open mind because you, you you never know what's going to teach who's going to teach you something or, or where that learning opportunity is going to come from so if you're always um ready for that then those opportunities will present themselves to you a lot more often i guess right i think they're kind of light bulb moments sometimes you kind of like you you think you, you you're, you're doing all right and then someone says something to you and you think i've never considered that and that's really something i should think about and then that's a real learning moment for you know because Sometimes we spend a lot, a lot of time reading and disseminating information and stuff, but we don't actually use it, we don't apply it, we don't learn from it sort of thing. And then you get the moment to actually do that and you think, wow, that's really powerful, you know? Yeah. It's interesting what you said there about when when you first started out, there was there was no Google. And it yeah. reminded me of uh, when I had a conversation with, with Russ Barber during Series 1. He said when he first started out, you have to go to the library, get a book out, read the book yeah go and go and visit a, a club and it was like and i found that really strange i was like why would you go to a library to get a book out when you can just google it and then i'd realized that well, google probably wasn't wasn't a thing right so yeah no definitely not I, I as i say to the kids when i was at school doing my a levels we didn't have computers like you know we didn't you have to go and you know as a university it was all a microfiche you didn't you didn't go into computers look things up you know like the information available i mean there's there's two sides to that there's a lot more information available but also it's a lot less rigorously tested so there's a yeah. lot of you know kind of false stuff out there as well sort of thing so it's very easy for anyone to set something up type on the internet then you know it's there for everyone to see so Every, everyone's an expert there. on the internet right <laughs> <laughs> yeah well actually since since our lockdown started i've become an expert on zoom more than anything else. yes <laughs> yeah i think when i first started the podcast i used to go like it just started really as kind of something for my own development so i'd go and visit a club watch like a session or something yeah. and then i'd sit down with a coach afterwards and just record a conversation and i thought oh, i might as well share it and then when lockdown came around i thought well i can't go and visit clubs anymore so i just better do this on on zoom and so now everything just happens on zoom it's, um, yeah it's a it's a it's a great medium yeah <laughs> so You've uh, you've been head coach at uh, City of Glasgow, and whilst you were yeah. head coach there, you also uh, selected to be head coach to, to Scotland at the Commonwealth Games. How yeah. did those kind of the responsibilities of those two roles? They're both head coach roles, but I imagine they're very different in terms of the role you have to play as a head coach in those two different scenarios. Yeah, well, really, my my role in Glasgow, I wasn't head coach of the club. I was kind of like the the performance coach of the performance program, which was about twelve athletes. So, in some ways, it was it was probably my dream job. In some ways, it was like very easy to do. Yeah, a small number of athletes, you know, very focused. That was you know very easy. Uh, being the Scottish head coach was that's probably my proudest moment in in swimming because not only was it um, being head coach for Scotland, but I lived in Scotland for over twenty years. Uh, Scottish people are very close to my heart anyway. It was also in Glasgow at the pool that I coached in. So it was like like a double whammy. And yeah. to be asked to um, lead the team was was fantastic. And I hadn't realised until then how much work went into being a head coach of a national team. And it was it was more than just turning up on the day and, you know, kind of looking after the coaches in the summers. It was about being involved with the whole campaign from 
been involved with setting the qualifying times, the qualifying criteria, looking at um, what the benchmark meets were going to be, looking at the group of potential staff and athletes. We were the first team, I think, in Great Britain that we picked our staff, not based on the athletes that they coached, but on how we thought they would interact to, to create that team. We picked our staff before the trials as well. So we kind of knew roughly where the kids would come from, but tried to look at how we as a coaching team and support staff team could, could be really effective in that environment. So we spent a lot of time with a sports psychologist, Misha Boating, who's um, worked for Sports Scotland and Scottish Swimming. And he was fantastic in helping us. You know, what happens if it's day one and your personal swimmer swims really poorly, but you've then got to coach some other athletes to, you know, stuff later on. How do you deal with that? What do you want from, from your other coaches? Do you want your other coaches to, to say, oh, look, I'm really sorry, or to leave you alone? And, you know, and all that kind of stuff that helps make a team under pressure work really well together. Yeah. So we did a lot of that, a lot of planning, a lot of um, organizing the training camps, a lot of identifying barriers to what would stop us doing really well um you know and then being responsible for how it all was on deck so setting that tone for the for the athletes we had quite a number of athletes on the team that were rookie athletes we also had the likes of hannah miley michael jameson so we had to do a little bit around making sure those rookie athletes weren't starstruck by our star athletes because yeah. you know, they were the, they are some of the theme giants of, of british women and so we did a lot of work around that kind of team bonding and making sure everyone realized they were equally as important a member of the team and obviously but then when you get to the commonwealth games itself if you get through the final you now take priority because because you're, you're a finalist and i think you know the other side of it was just about dealing with you know the athletes because like like all things in life you get athletes who did really well athletes who were disappointed and you can think of the typical race would be the uh, the men's 200 breaststroke well, obviously michael jameson wanted to win it wanted to break the world record to actually win it and he got beaten by ross murdoch who broke the british record so on the one hand ross is you know, he's super excited. Yeah. It's like, it's all great for him. And on the other hand, Michael is devastated by that. So we, we gave him a couple of days where he didn't have to come down to the pool at all. Didn't have to hang around the team just to let him just, you know, lick his wounds a little bit because he, it, it wasn't possible for him to be in that environment of going rah, rah, and being, being happy for everyone. He'd been devastated, you know. Yeah. So stuff like that is always part of the, the kind of head coach's role, you know, and making sure those those things pass off smoothly. So, yeah, and it's super exciting. I, I, you know, it's probably my, my greatest honour. So I think... You said there about when you had those kind of uh, rookies in the team, people that probably hadn't been to a senior international event before. Yeah. And making sure that, you know, they weren't starstruck by that, that situation. Reminded me of a conversation I had with Ian Wright. And he said he had, I think, Katie Armitage on that, on that team who yeah. hadn't come through right. Scottish development camps or, or anything through that way. And he said, you know, he had to find, find a way to get her into the kind of, system so that when she actually traveled to the games it wasn't a new experience she was with athletes that she'd been around before and she wasn't it wasn't completely new to her how how important is that process of making sure those more kind of junior athletes on, on a senior team feel a bit more at home within the environment I, th I think it's hugely important and i think you know in some way probably wales and scotland are a little bit um a little bit better place to make that happen because they're smaller teams so you've got less um you don't have the, the same critical number of perhaps swimmers who were been at the previous Olympics on the on the Welsh team. You've got one or two, so they don't have like a proper cohort. I think the difficulty is on the bigger teams like England is that um, you have a number of swimmers who've been around. They've done Olympic games together, so they kind of create their own little their own little group within a group. Yeah. So I try not to let that happen. So on a small team, it's a little bit easier because you've got maybe you know in the Scottish teams, so we had like 
where we had had um, Michael, Robbie, Hannah, people like that, but maybe four or five, Kaylee McClatchy. So some really outstanding athletes who've been to the Olympics, but there wasn't enough of them to make a separate group. So there were enough rookies around them to, to, to make that happen. But we did a lot of team building activities. We went out for team dinner. So we had a massive training camp the Christmas before the Commonwealth Games. And we took all the potential athletes there. So there was a massive spectrum. We took about 45 athletes, I think, out to oh, wow. um, T3. And, um, you know, it's, again, it's a lot of stuff on the camp was there to help the athletes interact with each other and make sure they got to know the senior athletes as well. So they got to them as people rather than just icons. So it was really important. I think it is really important to make everybody feel equal on the team and everyone feel part of that team. And, you know, and then everyone's able to share in everyone's success. They were all screaming, you know, Michael on, screaming Ross Murdoch on, and the men's four by two freestyle team where we're smashing the Aussies with, you know, 200 to go sort of thing. So, yeah, it's all good. And funny enough, Duncan Scott was one of the, one of the, one of the rookies on that team. And, you know, I look at where he, he is now and you think, wow, yeah, a long way in six years. Yes, uh, to think 2014 was six years ago is uh, it seems like it seems yeah, like it wasn't too long ago. Yeah, but six years is 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 quite something. Um, obviously, when when you're a head coach on a team like that, there's there's a team of coaches around you, and presumably, the team of coaches around you deal more kind of one to one with the athletes, and you don't have your own separate group of athletes yourself. How how is that in terms of from before actually when you go to a meet having athletes to work with to then actually not having any athletes directly with you but it's, more overseeing the situation it's kind of it's it's hard in some ways because like so if i go back to commonwealth games the hard thing is i had two athletes on the team who i'd personally coached up until the kind of holding camp and then i had to hand them over to somebody else and you know as any swimming coach will tell you you want to be very much hands involved and all that kind yeah. of stuff sort of thing. so but you just have to just try, you know, having trust in your in your team, having done that all that stuff, whereby you know you've got like a proper cohesive team working around you. Those things really help. And you know, I think back to um, even back to like Rio. I had Chloe Tutton and Yian Lloyd on the on the team. Um, Chloe was looked after by Mel Marshall. Mel was great. So prior to uh, a long way prior to uh, Rio, Mel knew that she was coaching Chloe. We set up a WhatsApp group. We shared some stuff together. So Chloe felt familiar and comfortable around Mel. So when they got to uh, Rio, it was a case of she'd already established a kind of working relationship with her. So it wasn't a case of, right, I've got to get to know this swimmer sort of thing. So because I think that's always an issue is trying to yeah. get to know your athletes and, and get them to a place where you know what makes them tick and how to speak to them. And also, you know, how to um, how to understand them and read them, you know. How tempting was it in Glasgow with those those two athletes that you had directly on the team? How tempting was it for you to to try and get involved with what they were doing when they were when they were there? Massively, massively, <laughs> yeah, massively. But you just got, you know you just got to try not to try not to do that. So um, I'm also very quite a passionate person in terms of like I like to be very hands on. I'm very I like to shout and scream and cheer things on that sort of stuff. So I think so. Um, I find it very hard to step back and and not be involved, you know, just, but just, it was important just to, you know, let them work with their coaches and then, but see them around and go out for coffee with them and talk to them and just, you know, make sure things were going okay sort of thing, because equally I had responsibility to those individual athletes as their home coach, as well as the head coach of Scotland. So yeah. you have to try and satisfy both roles and they are very different roles. So I think you spoke previously about, you know, having put swimmers on, on Olympic teams. Uh, you spoke there about in Rio, also in London as well. Um, planning for an Olympic season very different to how you plan for a normal season, right? Um, yes and no. I, you know, I think um, 
the couple of things I learned, and I've learned from other coaches in particular, is that you know you never introduce anything new in Olympic season. You want to do something new, you do it the year before, the year before that, because if it doesn't work out, then you've got a chance to learn from it. Because one of the things now, my English teacher will probably kill me for misquoting this poem, but I always remember this poem whenever I think about kids wanting to be, you know, get on a British team or make their first British nationals, and it was kind of like it goes something like this. I can't remember. It's something like, um, "I being poor have only my dreams." I've spread my dreams under your feet, tread softly because you tread on my dreams. And as my coaching life, I keep thinking is, you know, as a coach, you have to tread softly because you're dealing with an athlete's dreams. And if you don't get that athlete in, in the right shape to deliver at trials, you've destroyed his dreams or her dreams. So I always kind of think it's like Olympic years about just trying to do everything perfectly, trying to ask the athlete to leave no stone unturned, to really think about, you know, being the best version of themselves on a daily basis without doing anything new, but just really trying to be, bring that intensity and that focus. And if they are prepared to do that, then I'll bring that as well. I know you, you, can, you can bring that for them and just try and make sure that they, that they come into Olympic season, understanding there's a greater reward, but there's also a greater risk. So everything's got to be perfect. But yeah, don't change things drastically. Don't add new things in. Don't do lots of stuff different because that's not the time to be experimenting. The year before that or the year before that's the time for that. Do you find that when an athlete has that goal of going to the Olympics and you know, it's, it's a realistic goal for them w- within that season, do you feel any added responsibility or added pressure as the, the coach to, to deliver an Olympic standard training season? I think there's always that 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 pressure when you've got athletes that, that want to be at that level. There's always that pressure. It's, one of the, it's like a dual-edged sword. It's great you know, coaching kids at that level is great, it's fantastic, it's fun, it's exciting, but also it brings with it a huge responsibility to, you know, to make sure they're in the best shape of their lives because they'll need to be to qualify for the team, let alone then go on to, to compete even, even better at the Olympic Games. So, yeah, it's, you know, it is exciting, but it is also comes with it a lot of responsibility. And, and those swimmers that have perhaps represented uh, Great Britain before in like um, maybe not Olympic Games, but in uh, World Championship, European Championships in in the seasons before the Olympic Games, does their kind of intensity and the atmosphere within their, just how they are in that Olympic year, does, does it change? Is there a notable difference in like the way people are? I don't think so. I think, um, the nice thing about swimming nowadays is that I've learned this from, from, from athletes that, that, that I've coached, particularly from Robbie Rennick. He was a, a big one for this. It was like when I first started coaching Robbie, he was at university and we were doing some stuff. I worked him really hard. Obviously been a 200, 400 freestyler, 10 sessions a week, three gym sessions, circuit training. Um, he got to the point where he was struggling with his university. So he came to see me and said, look, Graham, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling to cope with that. So I sat down and said, okay, well, let's go back and let's look at what we can do in terms of maybe reducing a land session or reducing a pool session. And he turned around to me and he said, no, Graham, that's not what I mean. I'm going to suspend my studies because I got one chance to do this. I can go back to university and do that when I'm 30 or 40, whatever. If I got one chance to do this, and I've got to do this right. I've got to do it right this time. And I've got to be able to be in that position. If you say I need to do all this, all this training, I'll do the training, but I need to recover. So I need to have some time out. And I was like, do you know what? I never really... Um, really thought of from the athlete's viewpoint it was always a case of I was always trying to facilitate athletes and he was like no let's just you know this is it this is this is this is my chance so let's take that chance and do it and I think that's what I kind of really learned from him is to make sure if athletes are going for a Commonwealth Games or Olympic Games or European Championships if you want to do it badly enough then take that chance put yourself in a position where you can 
do what you need to do, do it properly and, you know, turn up on the day in the best shape of your life. And then you've got the best chance of making the team. I guess it goes back to that, you know, tread carefully because you're treading on someone's, someone's dreams. If that's yeah. someone's, you know, dream to go to the Olympic Games and this is probably their, their best opportunity, probably one of their only opportunities to do it, you know, you've got to make sure that everything is going into making that, that happen, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I think you know the days of athletes going to five Olympics is is is, is probably gone now because the sport itself is so much more uh, professional. You know the standards in swimming are so high. To make the British team, you have to be at, at, at your peak. If you've done two or three Olympics, you know that's a, that's an outstanding effort. So once once a swimmer then qualifies for the games um, at trials, which are typically April time. What then goes into kind of the, the planning process around preparing them to then go and try and deliver an even better swim at the Olympic Games? Because I imagine it's for some, it's the achievement of a lifetime to qualify for Olympic Games. But then you've got to kind of turn it around and think, well, no, actually, that's only half the job. The job is to go and deliver a, a great swim at the Games. Yeah, it is, it is really tough because, you know, I, if I go back to Chloe qualifying for uh, Rio in 2016, Chloe Tutton, you know, she did a British record and dropped the best time by over four and a half seconds that season to qualify, to do a qualifying swim. Now then to think you're going to go and do even quicker again at the Olympic Games in that kind of pressured arena is, you know, it's tough. But as it was, she went to the Olympics and equaled her best time to a hundredth of a second, which for me was actually, and came fourth, was an outstanding achievement. But it is really difficult. If you're an, if you're an athlete who may be, I don't know, if you're Adam Peaty, and you know, you know, you can go 58-2 and, and qualify, then you go 58-2 at trials to look to go your 56-5 or whatever it is at the Olympic Games when it really counts. But if you're not in that position, it, it is really tough then to try and, you know, I think that's one of Britishman's mantras nowadays is to, tr to try and go your your best, your season's best at the, the biggest meet, you know. And it is difficult. And for me, it's just about, it's more about giving the athlete confidence that they can do that, you know, psychologically preparing them because trying to get them in the best physical shape of their lives, but reminding them of that and reminding them of the fact that no one's worked harder than them. It doesn't matter how fast the opposition are, but nobody's worked harder than them. But showing them the evidence from, from, from training sets or, or, or gym sessions, et cetera. And, and just really, you know, taking confidence from the fact that they've done the work and they are in the best shape of their lives and then taking that forward because if they're able to do that and, and control their, their arena nerves or anxiety, and they can go and have a really good swim, you know, because it is difficult when you're in it at the Olympics when hundreds of seconds is the difference between, you know, eighth place and 15th place. I think so. Yeah. It, it is tough. But I think, and also just trying to get to enjoy it as well, because, you know, you've come all that way, you've worked that hard, you want to, you want to swim really well, but you also want to enjoy that process. You don't want to kind of like, just like, you know, dread that process. So you spoke there about, you know, preparing them psychologically. How... I, I always wonder about this, especially with with the special case of, of the Olympic Games, because in in swimming it is the biggest the biggest stage there is for, for a swimmer to compete on. Yeah. How can you prepare someone to go into that environment? Because you can't you can't replicate that, can you? No, I, I guess not. But I think I think for me it's just about you know all athletes deal with pressure in very different ways. So it's understanding what that pressure looks like for that athlete and how you can help them deal with it and cope with it and not let it build up to a point where it um, strangles the performance. I think if you can do that, you get athletes, and get athletes to understand, it's like, you know, 
you have a number of kids who, you have some kids who seem to rock up to the blocks, they seem to laughing and joking, the Usain Bolts doing all their little, you know, whatever's and, you know, and life's sweet. And I look at, Yaya would be a perfect example, you know, he dabbed on the way out to the semi-final of the tournament medley at, at, at the Olympic Games. Super relaxed, enjoying the environment, enjoying the atmosphere because he thrived on that kind of pressure. And other athletes, you know, physically thrown up in the, inf- in the, in the call rooms. But it's about helping them realise that's normal for them. And when they swim fast, that's what normally happens. And if you try and normalize that behavior and make them understand that that's normal behavior, then it's not great, but they can at least accept that's the reason why. And it's only when we, when we, we confronted by a situation we don't actually know. At the end of the day, it's, it's just a race. Actually, Russ would be the perfect person who, who would say, it's just, it's a, just a gala. It's there and back. It's up the pool and back again sort of thing. It's, it's, it is the same thing. Yeah. It's just dealing with all the other stuff with the 10,000 fans screaming with, you know, being next to Michael Phelps in the call room, whatever. And if you can allow your athlete to have those skills to actually deal with that, to be in psychological shape to deal with that, the swim part's the easy bit. Yeah, I think I've, I heard a story uh, about Kyle Chalmers um, at the, the World Champs the other year before his, uh, before his final. He was just outside kicking a, an Australian football around because that's, that's what he's really into. He's really into his yeah. Aussie rules football. Yeah, yeah. Him swimming is just something he does well, and so for him, he just he was out there enjoying that. And then when it was time to swim, it was oh, okay, I'm gonna go and gonna go and race now. So like I said, different people prepare it in different ways. I think right? That's super important, and but but understanding what's right for you because there's no right answer. You know, you can be like Carl, or you can be a bundle of nerds. You've got your headphones on, and you have to you know properly block everything out. Sort of thing. It's like whatever works for you. So, reflecting back now on. Uh, on, on your career as, as, as a coach, what advice would you give uh, to a younger Graham Wardell finding his way in, in coaching? Are there any situations you look back on and wish you'd handled them slightly differently? I'd say do it all sooner. I, you know, I didn't get into it until I was kind of like at a university and then I was like, I worked for a number of years. I worked a job. I tried to study for an MBA and, and coach part-time and it was stupid. I just kind of worked stupid hours and it just, you know, I wish I'd decided to try and um, get into kind of full-time professional coaching at an earlier age. I think that would have, that, that would have helped. Um, I think just to be confident in, confident in yourself for the long term as well, confident in your choice of career, because again, people would look at you and kind of go, you're doing what? Because back when I started coaching, it wasn't really a, you know, a professional sports coaching career outside of the professional sports wasn't really, um, something that people thought they were like you've got a degree well why are you doing that and you're like because I enjoy it um, and to be yourself I think it's really important is that you just as a coach you are yourself you don't try and be a version of somebody else or people don't say to you just to you know just to change to moderate your behavior in a certain way it's like it's important to be true to yourself and just be the person that you want to be I always want to have fun at every session I want to you know leave every session even now every day I want to leave the session having had fun and I, I will make sure at some point in that session I've had fun because that's why I do it. I do it because I really enjoy it. Awesome. So we always ask uh, our guests, um, no matter who they are, for their kind of three key points on, on a specific topic. Um, and seeing as you know, you've had such a long career so far in, <laughs> in coaching, uh, I wanted to ask about your three tips for making sure coaches have you know, longevity within their career? The first one would be choose your family carefully because my family is so used to, you know, everything fits around the swimming year. So <laughs> I've got two grown-up daughters. They're both married. The years they got married were both Commonwealth Games years. They both phoned me and said, 
when's a good time to get married around your commitments because they know <laughs> you, you, you know it's like because it is a crazy it's a crazy ass job where you're working long weekends you don't get huge breaks and so you know i've got a super supportive wife who you know understands when you're away 16 weekends on the trot and you're working from six in the morning till nine o'clock at night sort of thing and i think that is really important you've got a supportive um yeah structure around your family friends whatever because if they don't understand your life and they don't understand the pressure that that it it kind of brings with it, it it's very hard to, to 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 stay in this job because something something i have to give my second thing would be what i said just that before was have fun every day i've never had that dread of turning up on monday morning i love the mornings i love monday morning it's great to be back at work you know and it's like you can't do this job unless you love it. You don't do it for the money. You don't do it for the hours. You don't do it for the working conditions. You do it because you absolutely enjoy working with kids and, you know, seeing them progress. And just, I, I got a great bunch of coaches around me. I've learned from some really good coaches and, you know, feeling you're, you're part of a coaching team as opposed to, although I'm the head coach of the club, we're a coaching team and we very much work together. And, you know, I think that is also part of the beauty of going to work. And my, my final thing would just be, it's just, yeah, just try and keep learning, you know, just try not to ever think that you've, you've ever learned enough because I think like most coaches say, the older I get, the less I know because you realise there's more stuff you don't know about, if that makes sense. So when I was, when I was 20, I thought I knew it all because I knew like the first three things in the assistant uh, coaches uh, course, whatever it was in those days. And as you get further and further into it, you realise there was more and more involved. And, you know, and you don't have to be responsible for all that. You can just actually... You know, you don't need to know all, all this to know about S&C or psychology or nutrition. It's like, there are experts in that field. You can go speak to them. You can get them to come in and talk to your athletes. And you just have to manage that. And you don't have to do it all yourself. Excellent. Well, Graham, thank you very much for your time. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I actually found it really um, just actually refreshing. I think, you know, I, I, liked, I liked the poem. Um, I've not I've not heard that poem before, but I, I thought it was. I think it's a Yeats poem. I think so. I'd, I'd, have, I'd have to double check. I think it's a poem by Yeats. My English teacher, my GCSE or O level in those days, English teacher would be shouting at me now, going, <laughs> "Should I learn that?" It was I just a few think years it's, ago, it is. It's really true of actually the role we have, um, and so I've never actually heard anything that fits so well into the into into the, the job that we have. So, so thank you very much for that. My pleasure, listeners. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you found today's conversation with Graham um, as insightful as I did. Uh, If you like the podcast, make sure you share it with other coaches that you know. Uh, We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Poolside Pass. And of course, on our website, www.thepoolsidepass.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care.